Well, if you've got your Bibles, uh, I'm going to invite you to go to uh, the Old Testament book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth is uh, deep in the Old Testament, um, and so go ahead and go to Ruth. As Jeff said uh, several weeks ago, um, uh, we began a sermon series called The Sovereignty of God, The Sovereignty of God. And really, uh, this sermon series uh, was inspired just a few months ago. Uh, It was a Saturday morning. It was April 11th, in fact. I know it was April 11th because it was the day before Easter. I had just gone up to uh, Bourbon A to the Indian Cave and uh, filmed, videoed the Easter Sunday message, and I'm driving back to Bloomington, uh, reflecting on the beautiful morning and just uh, the excitement of all that was going on uh, with with the Easter season. I turn on uh, Moody Radio, And just as I turn on Moody Radio, they are introducing uh, Pastor Dr. John Piper. Now, if you've never heard of Dr. Piper, uh, he uh, has pastored churches for many, many years. Um, He's written about a gazillion books. He is one of the most brilliant thinkers of our day as it relates to Scripture. I mean, he is a professor's professor. And if you've ever read any of his books uh, or heard him speak, he's on the international speaking tour as well. Um, He's got a great mind, and he always challenges you, and he always makes my head hurt a little bit because he is just so smart, and he knows so much about the Bible and the Christian faith. Well, on that day, uh, John Piper had just released a new book called uh, Coronavirus in Christ. Remember, this is April 11th. Uh, We only knew about COVID-19 for just a few weeks, and he had already released a new book um, just a few weeks after this. It was an e-book at the time, but now you can get it uh, in print. And, uh, you know, the the idea behind uh, the coronavirus um, and and Christ is, is fairly controversial, It's controversial because if you know anything about Dr. Piper, uh, what he talks about over and over and over is the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God in all things, how God is all-powerful, how God is fully in control in all circumstances. And we kind of get that, right, in our everyday lives. But when it comes to the global pandemic, How can Dr. Piper say that God is still sovereign, that God is still in control? It's a great question. And so throughout the book, he kind of unpacks this. And, you know, I think as we think about uh, the coronavirus uh, as it relates to uh, God, Jesus Christ, there really are only three basic conclusions that we can draw. Number one, uh, that God is not sovereign. I mean, think about it for a second. God saw this pandemic coming. God could have said, wait a second, evil forces of the world. Wait a second, disease. Wait a second, virus. You have no place here. God could have put the brakes on the coronavirus, but God, as we know, chose to not. So we ask the question, is God really all-powerful? Is God really in control? You know, and, and, and the, the first response is no. God's not sovereign. God is not all-powerful. The second conclusion that we could draw is, well, then God's just a sick God, right? 
I mean, he's not, he can't be a loving God, so why in the world would a loving, all-powerful, sovereign God allow all this suffering at so many levels in our world today? The, the, the conclusion that you could easily come to is he's sick. I mean, who does that? Who enjoys watching people suffer? That's a very reasonable and logical conclusion that we could draw. If God is all-powerful, why didn't he just stop it? No, he says, no, I'm just going to watch people suffer. I mean, that's just demented, right? But the third conclusion that I think reasonable people could come to, and this is the conclusion, of course, that Dr. Piper comes to, and that is simply this, that God is all-powerful. God is still in control. God is sovereign, And yet, God is going to use the coronavirus as a way to draw all people to himself. So that's what we're going to talk about today or continue talking about today is the sovereignty of God in all things, in life, in your life, in my life, and in the life of the world. Let's pray. Oh God, we thank you uh, for a beautiful day. The sun is shining. And Lord, we have much to be grateful for in the midst of so much suffering, so much heartache, uh, so much confusion of what's going on in the world, and so much even what's going on in our own lives. And so God, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, for you are indeed our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You know, I love the story of Ruth. It's a 3,000-year-old story that is not about a a powerful, wealthy woman. It's not about a, a, a woman who comes from a powerful or wealthy family or tribe. Ruth doesn't even come from a powerful and wealthy uh, nation. Uh, she comes from a clan in the land of Moab. Ruth actually grows up in, in, a, in a, probably a nice household, but they were not God-fearers. They were not following Yahweh, the one true God. And so Ruth is just growing up. She's just this everyday, ordinary girl. And then one day, uh, a tent shows up next to her family tent in the land of Moab. And it's this uh, Jewish family. And at first, things were really tense. You got to think that they were really tense because this was an Israelite family, and Israelites and Moabites, they were arch enemies. They didn't get along, and they worshiped different gods. But pretty soon, Ruth notices that this Jewish family living next door had these two fine, young-looking guys. And long story short, Ruth ends up marrying one of those uh, young Jewish men. But from there, the story really goes downhill. From there, we soon learn that uh, Ruth's father-in-law, Elimelech, he dies. And then a short time later, her brother-in-law dies, and then her husband dies. Things just continue to get worse and worse for Ruth. To make matters even worse, uh, Ruth had developed a very close relationship with her mother-in-law, Naomi. And Naomi said, I've had it. I'm going back home. I'm going back to the land of Israel uh, where my people are. 
And Ruth and her sister Orpah say, we're going with you. And so they start walking back to Israel, back to uh, Naomi's homeland, a place that Ruth had never been before. And now all of a sudden on the, the road, as they're walking back, Naomi stops and says, ladies, you need to turn back. Go back home. Go back to Moab. Marry uh, some Moabite men. I'm going home. You've never been uh, to the place where I'm going. You've never uh, been around my people. You don't know who they are. It's a foreign land. And we worship a different God. And in that moment, uh, Ruth's sister, Orpah, says, okay. And she disappears uh, from the pages of history. But in that moment, Ruth has this very powerful conversion experience. She looks at Naomi and she says, no, I'm going with you. I'm going to worship your God. I'm going to live with your people. In fact, wherever you die, that's where I'm going to die. Wherever they bury you, that's where they're going to bury me. Your people will become my people. Your God, my God. Ruth looks at Naomi and says, to death do us part. I'm with you. You're stuck with me. Ruth has this powerful conversion experience. We don't know all the details other than she meets the living God. And in that moment, God melts and softens her heart. And haven't you noticed that that's oftentimes what God does in our lives? in the life of of people all around the world and in our communities, people meet God and their hearts are just softened and they melt. Yesterday morning, there were a group of nine of us uh, who gathered over at the Spring Ridge subdivision, uh, which is just over here. And we decided we were going to get together and we were going to pray over 149 uh, condominiums in this subdivision. And so we broke into groups of four and we uh, spread out uh, through Spring Ridge just to every single unit. We're going to just pray a blessing over the, each of the homes uh, in these, these condominiums. And so that's what we did. And, and so we started praying. And as we prayed for each unit individually, we prayed a blessing over them. And then after we prayed over the house, we just left a little note on their door saying, hey, we just prayed for you. We just want God to bless you and your family and your loved ones. And we were having a great time doing that. But about 20 minutes into our uh, prayer walk yesterday morning, up pulls a vehicle. And this person in the vehicle uh, was, well, I'll just say madder than a snake. She was none too happy with us. She said she was waving her finger. Hey, these are private roads. You're not supposed to be here. And I'm getting calls from the neighbors, and I'm the president of the Homeowners Association. You are trespassing. You're not allowed to be here. And I don't, she was just going on and on and on, reading us the riot act, telling us that we had completely uh, ruined her morning, that she already had enough stress in her life with her own issues and her husband's issues, and now she's got to deal with us rabble-rousers going around the neighborhood. And, And finally, when she took a little bit of a break, from reading us the riot act, I said, hey, what's your name? She said, my name is Rita. I said, what's your husband's name? She said, his name is Keith, and he's got some health issues. I said, Rita, could we pray for you? She said, I suppose that'd be okay. So in that moment, 
She bowed her head, we bowed our heads, and we prayed for Rita and Keith. We had a little more conversation, and then she went on her way. A little while later, I learned that she went to the next group that was out praying for houses. She gave them kind of the same story, but this time she wasn't madder than a snake. She was like, hey, can you not do that, please? And they said, okay, we won't leave things on the door, but we're just going to keep praying if it's okay. And then they prayed for Rita. And then she went to the next group. She shared with them, and there was a nice exchange, and they offered to pray with Rita. And by the time she showed up to the fourth group in our, in our party, she pulled up to them and said, hey, would you pray for me? In about 10 minutes, Rita went being, from being madder than a snake to saying, will you pray for me? Her disposition had completely changed. Later on yesterday afternoon, Marilyn took some treats over to Rita as a peace offering for violating the rules of Spring Ridge. And Rita said, do you know how many people prayed for me today? I mean, that's what God does. He melts people's hearts. We just pray for them and we love them and we walk alongside them. And that's exactly what's happening in the story of Ruth. Ruth went from being a pagan Moabite woman to a God follower, the God of Yahweh. So there's Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. And they travel to a land, to Bethlehem, a place that Ruth has never been before. They show up, and clearly as they walk into town, into Bethlehem, it's very obvious to everyone, and it's very obvious to Ruth that she's an outsider, that she is a foreigner, that she does not belong here. Because at this moment in time, she is a Moabite, which is a huge stigma. She comes from a land where they don't worship God. And furthermore, at this point in time, she is a widow. She's very poor. And so she looks at her mother-in-law and says, I'm going to go grab us some food. You stay here. And so Ruth goes out into the field, and uh, in those times, uh, in that place, uh, they were allowed to just gather crops from the, what had been left over in the field. It's called gleaning. And God had ordained this uh, in Scripture, in God's law, said, hey, what I want you to do is to leave some grain in the fields so that poor people, people who are less fortunate, who don't have as much as you, they can come along and gather some from you. So Ruth is out in the field gleaning, gathering some grain. And along comes the owner of this particular field. He's a guy by the name of Boaz. And he's like, I don't really recognize that field worker out there. And so he talks to one of the field uh, managers and says, who's that girl out there? I've never seen her before. And the, the field manager says, oh, she's a Moabite. Uh, her name is Ruth. Uh, and she has come uh, with Naomi. Uh, who is Jewish, uh, and, and they're out there gleaning, and she has permission uh, to gather uh, grain from your field. And Boaz is like, oh, all right. So he goes out, and he talks to Ruth and says, hey, I'm glad you're here. 
He says, I'm not only glad you're here, but I want you to just know that you are safe in this place. You can gather as much as you want. And hey, everybody else who is gathering grain today, keep an eye on her. I want you to protect her. And Ruth is just overwhelmed with gratitude. She's like, what in the world have I done to deserve your favor? Why are you being so kind to me? And Boaz says, you know what? God has blessed me. And I believe my calling in life is just to, to share out of my abundance with others. So you're, you're, you're welcome here, and we're going to watch over you. And furthermore, I want to invite you to not even to go any other fields. Just stay here and gather grain in my fields. And so this went on for a couple hours where Ruth is out in the field gathering grain. The whistle blows, it's lunchtime, all the field workers come in to take a break, get some lunch. They're all coming in from the field, and, and uh, Boaz says, hey, Ruth, you're not going to eat with all the other workers. I want you to sit uh, in the corporate boardroom with me, the CEO, the CFO, the COO, all the important people. And the exchange continues between Boaz and Ruth. And she doesn't just eat the normal food, but she eats the very best food set before her. And after they eat all that they can eat, uh, Boaz actually gives her a doggy bag and says, here you go, take some home with you. And then they all go back out to the field and they uh, glean for the rest of the afternoon. Now, later on in the day, Boaz makes sure that Ruth has enough groceries uh, for an entire month. So after she's gleaned all day, she's got a doggy bag. She's got all this uh, grain um, that she's, she's collected. That Boaz says, send her home with a whole bunch of food. So that evening, Ruth shows up back at Naomi's place in an F-150 pickup truck. And it is loaded with food. And of course, Naomi comes out and says, where in the world did you get all that food? Who gave it to you? That is more than a month's worth of groceries. And Ruth says, I met this guy today. His name was Boaz. And he was so nice to me. And Naomi, she had the gift of discernment. She said, I think he likes you, right? This is the Captain Obvious part of the story, right? Boaz has shown an interest in Ruth by giving her all this stuff. And so in this moment, Naomi hatches a plan to make this relationship go just a little bit further down the road. And that's where we're going to pick up today in Ruth 2, chapter 2 beginning with verse 20. We've got a lot of scripture to read today, so we're going to kind of go fast. Ruth 2, beginning with verse 20. They've just come together, Ruth and Naomi, and they're sharing this dialogue, this conversation. May the Lord bless Boaz, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead, she added. That man is actually our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers. Then Ruth the Moabite said, he even said to me, stay with my workers until they harvest, finish harvesting all my grain. Naomi said to her daughter-in-law, it will be good for you, my daughter, to go with the women uh, who work for him. 
because in someone else's field you may be harmed. So Ruth stayed as close to the women of Boaz to glean until the barley and the wheat harvest were finished. And she lived with her mother-in-law. Let's see, uh, chapter 3. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law said to Ruth, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. Which is just another way, of course, of saying, Ruth, it's time for you to get out of the basement. It's time for you to find a new home. It's time for you to move on from this season in your life. Ruth, it's time for you to find a new man. Verse 2. Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. So it's at the end of the harvest. And everybody's kind of doing celebrating because all this hard work has been done. And they're, they're out on the threshing floors where they, they separate uh, the grain uh, from the chaff. And it's this great party, this great celebration. It's kind of like harvest time here in central Illinois with the, with the combines. And it's the end of it. And, and they've loaded up all the crops and they put them in the big storage uh, trucks and bins. And they've hauled them off. And it's just like, ah, oh, the harvest is done. And you can smell the grain in the air still because it's, it's wafting around from, from all the harvesting. And, and then Naomi looks at her daughter-in-law and says, you know what, here's what I want you to do. Go take a shower, put on some really nice clothes, put on some perfume, and then just show up to see what happens and what's going on. Don't put any pressure on Boaz. He's been working hard. Just show up and be present. Don't put the full court press on this guy. Verse 4. You know, before we get there, uh, at this point in time, I think Naomi has given Ruth some really good advice. Just show up. Just show up and put on, you know, just, just look good and, and look decent and, and, and just make yourself available. I think that's a, some really good advice uh, from a mother-in-law uh, to a daughter-in-law. But here in verse 4, we're going to see some really bad advice, okay? Which should tell us that you can't believe every piece of advice that you're given in life, all right? So verse 4, Naomi gives Ruth some bad advice. Uh, She says, when he lies down um, after eating and drinking, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. I'm sure he will tell you what to do, right? That seems like some really bad advice, and I can't imagine there is any mother or father in this place who would give that kind of advice to their daughter. Just go out to the, go, to the party where there's lots of eating and drinking, and then just go lay down uh, close to that person who's shown an interest to you. That seems a little sketchy to me, but that's... Naomi's advice to Ruth. Verse 5. I will do whatever you say, Ruth answered. And I think the beautiful thing about Ruth's response is that she's not just a humble woman, 
but she's also a woman who respects authority. And I love this about Ruth. She, she probably doesn't fully get all that's going on here, but she respects the authority of her mother-in-law. Verse 6. So uh, Ruth went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet, and lay down. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. Who are you? he asked. I am your servant Ruth, she said. Spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. There's a colloquialism uh, in the midst of what Ruth is talking about here that we don't necessarily pick up. Spread a corner of your garment over me. We don't really talk in language like that today. But in Hebrew culture, what Ruth is saying to Boaz in this moment, hey, I know I'm lying next to you. I'm not married. I'm single. Ruth is letting Boaz know that she's a single woman and that she's available. She's on the market. That's what she's, that's what she's implying here when she says, spread your cloak over me. She's saying, hey, I'm single. Would you consider ever marrying a girl like me? And at this point in the story, I, I like how Ruth kind of does this dating dance, if you will. She doesn't do kind of this full court press on him. She doesn't pursue him. She just shows up and makes herself known to him that she's there and that she's single and that she's available and that he might just consider marrying her at some point in time. Many years ago, uh, when I was in college, I worked in uh, the uh, campus coffee shop. And my job was serving coffee and donuts for students who would come and just want a place to study, a place to take a break from their studies, or just come and socialize a little bit. One day, I noticed that there was this uh, student who happened to show up. Uh, she frequented the place uh, often, and she usually had her books open, and she was sometimes studying. Sometimes she was socializing, but I noticed she would come to the, uh, the counter quite frequently and ask for a refill uh, on her coffee. And this happened over and over and over, and I got to thinking to myself, this girl really likes coffee. We've been married now 27 years. You know, and that, uh, I think back on that, you know, she didn't pursue me. She didn't come after me. She just kind of made herself known to me in a very subtle, beautiful way. And I think that's what Ruth is doing in the story. Hey, I'm here. Spread your cloak over me. I'm a single girl. Where are we at? Verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, Boaz replied. This kindness is greater than what you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you as you ask. 
All the people in my town know that you are a woman of noble character. And although it's true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there is another who is more closely related than I. And so Boaz, very interestingly, his first response is, wait a second, That's, I'm, I'm flattered that you would want me to marry you. But you know, there's a lot of guys younger than I am. I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of a middle-aged guy. What would a young, a, attractive young woman like you, why would you want to marry me? Why, why don't you just go find somebody else? I'm very flattered that you've asked me. And furthermore, according to their custom, according to their law, there is actually someone who is closer, someone who is actually supposed to be taking care of Naomi and Ruth. And so Boaz doesn't just blow on by all the traditions, all the customs of the Jewish people. He said, wait a second, there's an order to this. Somebody is supposed to take care of you two widowed women, and I could be a candidate, but there's someone ahead of me in line. And what Boaz does in that moment is he follows the rules. He, he respects the authority of their religion and of their customs. He says there's someone more closely related than I. Verse 13, he looks at Naomi, uh, Ruth and says, stay here for the night. And in the morning, uh, if he wants, uh, let's see, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. Lie here until the morning. And so Boaz uh, looks at Ruth and says, okay, sleep here, hang tight. I'm going to make sure the person who's supposed to be taking care of you and Naomi, uh, your mother-in-law, I'm going to check with them first. And if that person decides that they're not going to take care of you, if they're willing to let go and allow me uh, to be your guardian, uh, I would be happy to do that. That's pretty remarkable, right? Because, I mean, think about it, especially you guys, think about this. Uh, Boaz has got this young, attractive woman um, in his bed, shows up, and in the middle of the night, he's been drinking, um, and, and she's just like, hey, I'm available, I'm here. And Boaz says, I need you to stay here. I want to do the right thing. I want to do the respectable thing. I want to do the honorable thing. I want to do the thing that is God-honoring. And I know this is very countercultural to our culture today of swipe right, hook up. That's the culture we live in today, right? That's the culture of the day back then, too. Remember, in those days, everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Their culture of the day was the same as our culture today. Just do whatever feels good. Just do whatever feels right. And Boaz says, no, I'm not doing that. I'm going to serve God. I'm going to worship and be obedient to who God has called me to be. I'm going to do what is honorable and true. Verse 14. So Ruth lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone uh, could be recognized. And he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. See, this is a little bit scandalous. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. 
When she did, he poured into it six measures of barley and placed the bundle on her. Boaz just keeps giving her more and more food. Then he went back to town. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi said, How did it go, my daughter? Then she told her everything Boaz had done for her. And I think maybe the most important word in this entire story that we're reading uh, this morning, this section of the story, is everything Boaz had done for her. In fact, I underlined the word for in my Bible. Notice it doesn't say she told Naomi everything Boaz did to her. It doesn't say everything that he did with her. It doesn't say everything they did together. It says everything that Boaz did for her. Boaz, make no mistake about it, he was a man of great power and influence. Ruth was a woman who had no power, no influence, no money. And so Boaz could have taken advantage of this young woman. But he didn't. He chose to serve her. I think that's the lesson for today is for how Boaz serves this young woman and how this was of course Jesus story how he came to be a servant if we believe who Jesus said he was that he is the son of God then Jesus is all-powerful Jesus is fully in control that Jesus too is sovereign when Jesus came to this world, he could have lived in a palace. He could have um, lived a life of luxury. He could have lived a life of everything, just people waiting on him. But Jesus says, I'm not doing that. He said, I'm, when I go into the world, I'm going to be born and live in, of humble origins. I'm going to swing a hammer. I'm going to do a decent wage and, and just suffer and struggle in all the ways that, that the people who live on this earth live their lives. Jesus said, I'm going to live in the midst of broken relationships. I'm going to live in a poor family, which means I'm going to struggle uh, financially uh, like everybody else does. Jesus said, I'm going to live among people who experience sickness and die. That's what I'm going to do. Jesus says, I'm not going to use any of my power, any of my sovereignty. I am going into the world to serve. And that's what he did. For 33 years, Jesus served among his disciples, among God's people. And then on one Passover, Jesus is sharing a meal with his disciples, with his friends. He said, guys, I'm not done serving you yet. I've got one more act of service. Then Jesus explained to them that he would be tortured, and that he was going to die on a cross. He says, you know, it's not just dying on the cross, the physical, the, the beatings and the torture uh, that they're going to do to me. But what I'm actually going to do, what you're about to witness, is I'm going to take on your sin as I go to that cross. I'm going to be nailed on a cross, and I'm going to receive your sin. And as I die on the cross, your sin is going to come to me, and I'm going to take that sin and go into the pit of hell. 
I'm going to deposit your sin in the pit of hell, and then I am going to rise from the dead. And the theological term for this is a propitiation. We read about this in Scripture. He who had no sin, who knew no sin, took on the sin of the world. Sometimes we know this is the great exchange. The one who is pure, the one who is holy, came as a ransom for all of us who are sinful and broken. And he said, I'm going to take it all, and I'm going to take your sin to hell and leave it there. And when I take your sin on the cross, you become holy. You become pure. And so today, as we think about the sovereignty of God, we even think about how our purity relates to the sovereignty of God. Of course, the, the, the obvious part of this is none of us are pure because of anything that we have done. None of us are righteous because of any of our works. None of us are holy because what we have done. We are pure and holy because of what Jesus Christ has done on the cross. This suffering servant came and said, I give you this gift, this gift of purity, which allows you to be with your holy and perfect heavenly Father forever. And just like how Boaz gave this as all this grain, this abundance of, of stuff to Ruth, God comes to us and he just freely gives it to us. And he says, I just want you to have this grace upon grace, this, this purity, this holiness, this righteousness. And of course, our response is, what in the world did I do to deserve this grace? And like Boaz, Jesus looks at us and says, you don't deserve it. I'm just giving it to you because I love you and I care for you. And so our role, our, I think our, our gift today is to just receive this grace. Just receive what God has done for us. And in the midst of all the craziness going on in the world, to just say, God, I'm receiving it. I'm receiving it. And then to live into it and share what God has done in your life, that he's made you pure, that he's made you holy, that he's made you righteous, that you can live with him forever.